Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. I'm your host, Lance Thurner. Today I'm going to be talking with Professors Dominic Boyer and Simony Howe about their duograph, Wind and Power in the Anthropocene, which consists of two volumes, Energopolitics by Boyer and Ecologics by Howe. Together, these follow the development of wind power in southern Mexico and the social and environmental and political ramifications of a transition towards renewable energy. In this interview, I talked to both authors together about collaborative fieldwork and the wider implications of their research. Without further delay, I give you Simony Howe and Dominic Boyer, professors of anthropology at Rice University. Dominic and Simony, uh, it's wonderful to hear your voices again, and welcome back to the show. Good to hear you too, Lance. Thank Great you. Great to be here again. Yep. And uh, to begin, can you explain a little bit the genesis of this project, uh, how you began it, how you decided where you're going to go, and how you decided to work together? Well, we had been interested in doing a project that uh, was connected in some way to what was going to become our new hometown of Houston. So this is taking us back to late 2008, early 2009. We were moving to Houston, and we didn't know a lot about Houston. Like most people don't know a lot about Houston, but one of the things we knew is it had a lot to do with energy. So we began looking into energy and we said, you know, there's been a lot of anthropological work on fossil fuel energy and especially with the problems around petroleum extraction. But we, we, we realized that there wasn't a whole lot of attention that had been paid to renewable energy yet. And this was at that moment in the late 2000s, early 2010s, when the public discourse on climate change was getting a lot louder. People were talking a lot more about energy transition. And we thought this is kind of an interesting problem. You know, what are the politics and cultural dynamics of energy transition? So we began to look around and we looked at a few different cases, including this uh, amazingly interesting desert tech initiative that would have created massive solar farms in uh, the Sahara and in the kind of northern Arab world to send that energy up north to Europe. And we looked at some other renewable energy developments. I think Venezuela was a place we looked at, maybe Brazil. Uh, but we settled on what was happening in Oaxaca, Mexico, because right at that moment, there was a massive uh, plan to develop some of the best wind resources in the world. And the timing just happened to work out really well in terms of when we would be able to do the field work. And, and that's how we got connected to the, the wind parks of the Isthmus of Tehuantepec. And um, did you know right away that this was going to be a joint project? We did know right away that we wanted to work on this project together. And also, I would add to what Dominic just described, that it was important for us to politically, in principle, to work on renewable topics because we felt and still feel that these are really, really important sites of social and energetic change. And while studying oil is, of course, important, and there's been lots of great work done on that, we thought it was really important to create a kind of counterpoint to that energetic regime. And so there's a kind of politics 
I'd say, around the choice of working on renewables as well. And we've certainly been strong advocates of encouraging other people to work on these projects and these kinds of questions around transition and sustainability and climate change. So it's been an important part of our work, both together and individually as we're working on these projects. And did being in the field together change the dynamics of doing ethnographic field work in Mexico? Yeah, I think it did. I mean, what we realized as we were getting into all the thorny issues that make up renewable energy transitions in any place, we saw that we were dealing with really sort of massive scales of of analysis in some ways. And we began the work together. We wrote the uh, proposal, the, the grant funding proposal all together. So we've done this whole project collaboratively from the very beginning. And all of the field work we also conducted together, you know, every protest, every meeting, every interview, we were both there engaging and speaking with people and coming to understand the cases really, really well. What we decided to do at some point about, I don't know, two thirds of the way through the research or so, I would say, we were, you know, talking a lot about how we were viewing things and what we saw as the important dynamics. And Uh, we realized that we wanted to be able to write about these different analytic points of view, which you see reflected in the books, I think, and also to work on these different case studies to be able to open up the box a little further and create a more dynamic and robust and fulsome discussion of this complex process. And so that's when we decided to to write these two volumes. Uh, and Dominic came up with the idea of the duograph. So we're all familiar with the monograph and academic treatise, usually written by one person. And so this is meant to be a play on that, where we have these two volumes, but it's not precisely a volume one and two. We hope that people will read them together in parallel or perhaps cross back and forth between them. Um, but the, you know, it, it came out of an analytic interest in being able to explore different areas and dynamics of the field work and still give it the kind of granular detail that's so important to ethnographic writing and research. And was it evident to you um, early on that you would uh, have a division of labor as you do, whereas one book is more about ontology and the other about politics? Yeah, as Sony was saying, I think it really grew out of our own organically evolving interests in the study. And, you know, there wasn't, there were a lot of long evenings in Southern Mexico after a lot of long, you know, dusty, windy <laughs> days of field work. And as we would, you know, think about and talk about and process what would happen during the field work, I think we came to realize we had just very different perspectives on certain things, or, or maybe put a different way, just very different interests in what was happening. And, you know, rather than kind of fighting with each other to force a synthetic account, what we thought is, well, maybe there's a way we can do a kind of analytical division of labor here, which allows us to each explore our own interests and our own voices while still constantly back-referencing this ethnographic archive that the two of us had participated in, in collecting. So that was, you know, I think it, the d- idea of a division of labor emerged about maybe halfway through the field research. And then as we got, as we kind of committed to that concept of doing this in a duographic mode, um, I think that, you know, we got excited about this as being a kind of experimental innovation that we could invest in and develop parallel to the, uh, analytic work we were doing and the ethnographic work we were doing on wind power per se, so that there would be something kind of methodological happening on the one hand in the project and also something kind of substantive. 
And I can I ask you, Lance? I mean, you've just read closely read both of the books back to back. They're different. They're different texts, right? Very much so. Yes, they read very differently, uh, and they feel very different. And you know, even to the level of of how people are described, how things are described, um, you know, down to the adjectives and, and nouns used in the book are very different. Because there are certain people, a lot of people, there's certain events and encounters and dynamics that appear in both books. But I think it's a little bit, I'm hoping it's a little bit of that kind of Rashomon effect where you get two different perspectives on the, what are you know, seemingly the same series of events and encounters and relations that, that might introduce into the record of this casework, you know, how important it is one's own individual perspectives and analytical commitments in terms of how one interprets things. And so this is something that, of course, has been part of anthropological work for a long time, the so-called reflexive awareness to the conditions of production and conditions of possibility of anthropological knowledge at the same time that we are undergoing the process of investigation. I personally think reflexivity is one of the great strengths of anthropological research methods, but it also can be, uh, it may be sometimes seem a little too meta or a little too you know, kind of uh, abstract to people. And we were trying to really do something that would allow that reflexive space to open without it being the kind of caricatured postmodern uh, anthropologist wanting to just talk about themselves. Right. And I think it's important to point out that we're not trying to reproduce this kind of stereotypical lone ethnographer as though only an individual voice can render these important issues visible, but rather that that co-authoring and co-researching creates these these opportunities of thought and interaction and dialogue in a kind of close conversation that you can only have with someone with whom you've done uh, you know sixteen months of fieldwork in all this detail. So there's so much richness in the research collaboration. And Dominic and I have also co-authored pieces together that take up a synthetic voice, and that's been wonderful work as well. But whenever one co-authors with another person or another two people, as both of us have done separately with others. There is a synthetic goal that needs to be achieved. There's negotiation that needs to occur about the emphasis of the essay or the argument of the book, uh, the, as you said, the adjectives and the nouns to be used. So it's a trade-off. And um, I think we're very, we've become very keenly attuned to that. And that's been part of the the intellectual process for us too is working through those the, the the genesis and the generative capacities of collaborative research and both and the generative and also limited aspects of co-authoring. So it's been, you know, I, th- I think it's been a learning experience for us as well. And for we sure. really want to encourage others to take up this model if it's of interest, because I think it really does produce a different kind of work than than if I had done the project on my own or if Dominic had done the project on his own. Um, I think we got something much richer by having our two brains at work and uh, four feet on the ground, you know, tromping through the dust and dirt of of the Isthmus of Tehuantepec and getting blown by that fierce wind. And I don't want to I don't want to jump on jump onto your um, onto your mic here, Lance. But I will say that at some point in this conversation, we should talk about the obstacles and the impediments we faced in the publishing process which are also was a great learning experience for yes, us. That was very interesting. That was going to be my next question, not only in the, in the publishing world, but in your academic departments and in acquiring funding from institutions. How were these 
conducive or inconducive to doing this research jointly? Shall I start? Sure. Um, so our original vision for the duograph was actually to have it be one material object um, that would be a kind of flip over book where you would read you would read Dominic's volume going one direction and then you'd turn it over and then you would read my volume. So that we thought was a great innovation. And we've all seen these kind of flip over models before, and they're kind of fun to read. We thought mostly in magazines, but mostly magazines. And I feel like in the past, there were some books that I've seen back in the 80s or 90s or something. It's not that common. Although Anna Singh and a group of, uh, they did an edited collection actually that came out a year or two ago. Um, that is that flip over model. It's the arts of living in a damaged the, world. The arts of living. Like yeah. yeah. And um, so, but that hadn't come out yet, but everyone we spoke to, all our colleagues that we spoke to about this flip over duograph, they loved the idea. Everyone loved it. But it turns out that publishing that particular object was going to be very challenging, I guess, for the press. So as we were working through the process of getting this published, there was some resistance to that flip over model. And then there were questions about whether there should be two volumes and I think we do want to do a shout out to Duke University for being available and open to to doing the two volumes together and to creating a beautiful synergy between the covers and the design and the layout uh, and and also allowing us to do the preface and the conclusion together. So for those folks who haven't read the books, the preface is co-authored and it's exactly the same in both volumes in both books. The conclusion is also the same. So we worked on those two pieces together. Um, but it was, you know, it's generous of Duke. And I think that they've been really good uh, to work with in that sense and being able to produce these two volumes together. But it was certainly a negotiation throughout the process um, with the other press that we started with. And then in, you know, in collaborative conversation with Duke as well. I just wanted to, fair? yeah, absolutely. And I just wanted to drill down on a couple of issues that I think might also be of interest to the audience here, to listeners who are in the humanities and social sciences, and who probably have come up against in the course of everything from, you know, their own job letters through to their tenure uh, dossiers and everything in between. The fact that basically the quote unquote audit culture, to use Marilyn Strathern's term, of uh, of the academy in the humanities and social sciences is really focused on the idea of a lone researcher writer who produces uh, uh, artifacts, research objects, um, uh, deliverables, uh, we might say in the worst case scenario, uh, that are directly traceable and identifiable as belonging to a single author. And the, way, the reason I mention that is that this model of the duograph is a little funky. On the one hand, it is a collaborative project front to finish. On the other hand, it has two or artifacts in it, two books. One of the reasons why we couldn't publish it in that flipbook model is because there was no way, especially with library identification systems, to figure out how to, how to convey the fact that this was a, it was two things within one. Right. Because there was only one ISBN number. Yeah, right? all, the, yeah, that's true. It really came down to the ISBN. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> are you it, going to have one or yeah. are you going to have two? And whose name goes first in the Library of Congress copyright text? And yeah, again, that's arbitrary, but but maybe not. And it has to do with these informational infrastructures that really wreath 
our academic work in ways that aren't immediately obvious until you begin to push against the boundaries and you begin to realize, oh, there's a reason why, you know, it's so difficult to really do collaborative authorship. Part of it is like tenure review committees and promotion review committees who are looking at this and they said, well, if they published a book together, that means they each get credit for half a book, which is, you know, kind of ridiculous if that book is huge and a lot of work went into it. And Mm -hmm. why should we each get credit for writing a book? But uh, you know, those sorts of things, too, are part of this as well. And and w- one of the things that I, we hope is nice about this model of the duograph is if it's done in the way that we've done it here, is that it's possible for people to engage in a, in a full collaboration, whether two people or maybe more, and actually get credit for full participation as though they actually, you know, wrote a book themselves instead of, say, uh, just part of a book. So, yeah, there are various ways we we got into the kind of got into the maw of the academic audit culture in this process that was interesting too. In your field, anthropology, there is quite a precedent for doing collaborative work. Can you say just a few words about that and the place of your work in it? Well, we we cover some of this in the preface again to both volumes, talking about the history of collaboration and anthropology, which you know the Bateson and Mead or Mead and Bateson. Um, actually, that's a good reminder. We were careful as we were working on the preface. I insisted that the female person's name go first in each of those collaborations to try and undo some of the sexist citational uh, world out there, but. Um, Yeah, I mean, the Komarovs are another more recent and famous example of a a married couple, in fact, who have done all a lot of their research together and have written together in the synthetic voice, and they do it very beautifully. So there is a long tradition. But I would also say that in in comparison to the natural sciences, we're quite uncollaborative in some ways, because you know, in the natural sciences, you have many, many people on a team or in a lab who are multiply co-authoring um, an article, for example, or a book. Now, of course, someone's doing more of the labor than another, and someone has the prestige, and their name goes in a certain place rather than another. So there's all kinds of politics wrapped up in that. But I think that anthropology could afford, actually, to be a little bit more collaborative than it has been in the past. So there's there is great precedent, but I think Dominic and I both agree that there's room to be yet more collaborative and broadly collaborative in the way people undertake their work. And it's difficult to do because, again, like a full-scale anthropological research project requires about a year of fieldwork and coordinating people's lives and funding and time to be able to do that is challenging. And that may be, that's probably part of the structural reason why we don't see more full-scale collaborative research projects in anthropology because it takes a certain amount of coordination in that sense. But if we were to make it more possible in the future, I think that that would be a real boon to the field and would um, create even better works than anthropologists are already doing. Yeah, and I just think if we were to spend more time developing procedures for recognizing the kinds of labor that go into the realization of any written product and that means, you know, the peer review process and one's colleagues and places one gives presentations, but also the people who are supporting you in your department. And, you know, if you think of it comparatively, we've done a little work in, in film now, too. And basically anybody on a film project is recognized in the credits. I mean, the person who went to get coffee for the director is in the credits. And we don't have that kind of recognition procedure within 
most of the fields in the humanities and social sciences. I mean, people may be put in, in, the, the, acknowledgments. Uh, in the acknowledgments, but this idea that, that everybody who was part of this process is in a, some, in a certain way given a certain standard of billing is something that we don't, we don't really do. And I think it would actually be helpful for us, especially in anthropology, which is a field that you know, prides itself on its attention to human relations and human non-human relations. If we were to actually spend a little more time visualizing those relations, uh, I think that would be you know, all to the good for the field. Well, I have the two of you together. I also want to ask you about the place of your work in the in the wider uh, public discourse on climate change. You know, there seems to be this very black and white dualism between a, a doomsday scenario of societal meltdown and a rosy image of Elon Musk engineering the climate. Either technology saves us or our gamut is up. And both of these visions evince striking inflexibility and a startling lack of social imagination, as if our current ways of life, which have been built on fossil fuels, are the only way we can imagine living, and we'd rather move to Mars than live without air conditioning. Now, of course, some thinkers uh, are trying to imagine different ways in which humans might react to global warming, and in which the transitions incumbent upon us could be leveraged uh, to create a more egalitarian, democratic, uh, and convivial uh, types of organization. Uh, And of course, your work is very sympathetic with this. And I'm wondering, therefore, how you see the place of anthropology and ethnographic research in working through this transition and shaping it towards a better society. You want to start? Yeah, there's a lot there, Lance, but it's a really, really important point. So thank you for for putting that out there. Um, You know, I I have to say that this project, as Simony was saying at the beginning, belongs kind of to a suite of projects that we're doing related to climate and energy transition and, you know, among them, uh, I will just go ahead and shout out our own podcast, which is called Cultures of Energy, in which we, you know, kind of every week are talking to people about these issues, too, and just trying to to riddle our way through the Anthropocene and create a space in which we can have a conversation and, and you know, try to take a hard look at our situation, but also being optimistic about possible routes forward. You know, what I think this project has contributed to that broader suite or ensemble of, of projects is a real... Uh, you know, a real enlightening, at least for me, uh, look at the contradictions surrounding renewable energy. As you said, you know, we have this hope kind of that we will, uh, you know, kind of technology, technologically find our way out of the situation. And, you know, I think that that's kind of the, the default position for a lot of people is they're just going to hope that somebody will solve this problem through technology. And, and, you know, we have such a kind of a skeptical view of human capacity or human rationality um, or human empathy to, to, to find another way through it other than through machines. And, you know, I think what, what this project brought home to me is just, we just can't rely on that. I mean, you know, the technologies are there already, believe me, we could, we could decarbonize the global economy within 10 years. If there was political will, we have everything we need. Uh, The problem is that, you know, the, we have these infrastructures that were built for a different world than the one we're living in. And in fact, those infrastructures are kind of destroying the, our ecological uh, web. And then uh, we also have the, a tendency to kind of build, you know, new energy or bring new things online that fit within the conditions of possibility of the previous regime. So, you know, like the, as we, we talked about, you know, the, having the, uh, 
the renewable energy fit within a you know electricity grid that was designed and optimized for fossil fuels. Um, so we have all of that to cope with, and and it, I think for me it really just brought home the fact that renewable energy is incredibly important. It may be a tool to creating a better world, but we actually have to create the relations for that better world along the way. And if we don't, uh, we are just going to end up, you know, producing a slightly less carbon intensive version of our con- current situation. Mm-hmm. And we're, I mean, I think we talked about this a bit during the conversation about ecologics as well. We're in an experimental phase and mode for humanity right now in the midst of this transition. I mean, unlike the transition in energy forms that Europe went through two and a half centuries ago in transitioning over from biomass, essentially wood fuel as the basis of society to a fossil-based, coal-based logic for generating power, that was a certain moment in history. And there were certain lessons that were available to the persons involved in that transition at that time. But we're in a very different place now, not least of which because we are running from the terrors of climate change as we speak. So not only are we in a, in a situation and perhaps an opportunity to transition our entire energetic infrastructure the world over, but we also have to take into account the effects, uh, the impacts that, that our previous and current energetic infrastructure has made it out on certain populations around the world who are now suffering those effects. So it's both a terrifying time in the sense that we are, you know, every time we push down on the gas pedal, it's as though we've got our finger on the button. We're contributing to the malaise of an ecoplanetary context. And at the same time, we have this incredible human opportunity to, as Dominic said, create better relations with our non-human others, our environments, inanimate others, forces that exist in the world and create a better environment going forward, including one that has more sustainable, more appropriate forms of energy and energy distribution. Um, I think that this is really important. There's a People talk about climate justice, and I think it's really important that we begin to think of it also more in those terms and really put the emphasis upon the kinds of climate violence that 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 some people, uh, many people increasingly are starting to feel um, and the need to exercise climate justice in response to that. And renewable energy transitions are a fundamental part of that. Yeah. And, and in the end of the book, you, um, you discuss um, a number of recommendations uh, that about how the processes processes and benefits of wind development uh, could be more democratic and equitable, especially on the local scale. And and these are really concrete measures, largely in the hands of national governments, which naturally reflects the the funding models of academia, which reward policy-oriented research and so forth. Uh, But when we consider more broadly this just energy transition, where do you see signs of hope or where are the levers or the pressure points that might orient us towards a more uh, to the future we can't yet imagine. I'll just quickly, I'll jump in and then Dominic can add on to this. I think that one of the most dynamic areas that we've experienced, again, in our academic worlds, but also in the advocacy world is among indigenous peoples and indigenous scholars who have very rightly pointed out that 
for many populations, indigenous populations, they've already suffered through the apocalyptic forms of Anthropocene. And drawing attention to that fact is is very important to recognize because uh, the settler colonial mind frame is such that we're facing a crisis, and we are, but it's important to recognize who that we is. And I think we can really learn from persons, groups of people who have gone through um, similar crises in the past, that is the dispossession of their land, the destruction of their environments, their tearing apart of relationships um, that have been in place for millennia. So in some ways, the Anthropocene has happened to certain populations, and there's perhaps an awareness among others now that this is um, occurring. But I think these are important sites to be able to recognize um, how we can learn from past experiences and create, generate a better set of relationality going forward. So I think that's an important, an important group of people who are working as scholars and important uh, groups of persons who are, are living through these climate conditions that, that look kind of familiar to past colonial exploitation. Yeah, and I'll just I'll just tag on to that with a couple of quotes that I think have been really meaningful for me, but I think for us really in this project. And and one was a conversation we had with the uh, Nishnabe philosopher Kyle Powis White, in which you know we we were talking about you know he was you know raising really good cautionary points about what he calls settler apocalypticism. This idea that you know the world is collapsing and thus we have to like you know do whatever we can to transition, let's say, to renewable energy, you know, come what may, and doesn't matter how many indigenous people have to be displaced along the way, we have to save this, you know, this, this settler um, kind of predatory civilization. And he said, you know, why, why are we spending so much time working to save a broken world instead of trying to, like an obviously broken world that's obviously filled with injustice and inequity? rather than putting our energies towards creating a better one. It's Mm -hmm. a simple point, but I think it's incredibly powerful. And then also our colleague, um, Audra Simpson, who, you know, is a, is a, a, a scholar, a Mohawk scholar who's worked on border crossings in her area. And the, the work she's been doing on the politics of refusal, I think are incredibly important and informative here too, because, you know, uh, a lot of people, indigenous people in the community she's works with simply practice an art of refusal with regard to settler liberalism and settler governance. And I think that, you know, those of us who really care about, um, about trying to fix the damaged planet or, or getting ourselves off the Anthropocene trajectory have to learn to practice those arts of refusal when we're given choices like, you know, well, you can either choose business as usual, or you can have a kind of a very, you know, weak uh, carbon market. Those are your two choices. Like, you know, we have to refuse uh, the kinds of bad options we're being given and focus instead on, you know, building a different kind of world. So, you know, the other thing I found hopeful is just, I I do think that, you know, I guess people are always looking to the youth as as being the, the possibility of a better future. But I actually think at this moment, at least when it comes to issues of um, climate justice and uh, taking uh, civilizational transition seriously. I think there is a lot more attention to the youth. I love the fact that there is like, you know, a legitimate, you know, kind of hard left youth movement now around climate change and other social issues. I think that's exciting. I did not have that growing up in the 1970s and 80s, uh, where the organic intellectual energy in those days was, was in the kind of world of, you know, Reaganism. And the fact that 
that's gone. And that seemed to be the kind of uh, uh, ghost ship that it always should have been um, is great. And now that we have people who are like, you know, democratic socialists first and foremost, and, you know, sunrise movement people. And I mean, I really think that that generational transition is going to be important. Well, as we speak, Greta Thunberg is on her way over to Trump's America on a solar a sailboat, fully sustainable, zero emissions. And so she's going to hit our shores at some point in the near future. And so it is it is really exciting to see young people. And I'll just add in that I also know that both of us have been quite influenced, very influenced by feminist work going back um, to the 80s and 90s. I mean, obviously, Donna Haraway and her emphasis upon relationality, uh, Karen Barad, for me, maybe more so in intra relations. So there's feminist scholarship has been displacing man with a capital M mm-hmm. <laughs> for many decades now. And right now, uh, as we're facing this uh, apocalypse of Anthropocene, there is a need to displace, I think, uh, the apex species mentality that humans have had for so long. And in all honesty, feminist thinkers have been doing just that for a very long time. And so I think it's exciting to see the kind of regenerative work that's going on in feminist scholarship right now. I think it's it's burgeoning and booming, and there's so many exciting theoretical conversations going on, but also very activist advocacy, uh, you know, practically oriented conversations about justice and about equality. So it's an exciting time to be working on these issues. And um, Dominic and I are both basically have dedicated all our professional time and a lot of our personal time to try and undo the climate violence that exists in the world today. So we've kind of, we're on a mission, Lance. We're on a mission. (laughs) Well, I'll let you two have the last word. Anything more you want to add? Well, I mean, it's been it's been a really interesting, illuminating uh, voyage through this, both the, the substance of the project as well as the forms that it has come to take. And I think we've become pretty convinced that uh, this is a time, as somebody said, of experimentation where we should all be forcing ourselves. I mean, maybe that's the other side of refusal is like a refusal of convention. Like we should be really working hard at experimenting with different types of media forms, for example, as ways of, you know, connecting with people beyond uh, also, you know, our own uh, tight circuits of academic life. And that's why I think it's, you know, very, you should, you know, receive a lot of credit for the podcast work you're doing. And I think people who are really kind of pushing to take critical anthropological or just more broadly kind of human scientific knowledge out of the academy um, should be getting a lot of praise, not only from their colleagues, but also from their administrators and, you know, the people who are holding the reins over, you know, um, their social legitimacy and professional career, too. It'd be great to see more of an embrace of meaningful, public-oriented experimental scholarship. I also, I'll just, I'd like to do a quick shout out and acknowledgement to the people that we worked with in the Isthmus of Tehuantepec, who are themselves doing really amazing advocacy work. I mean, many of the people that we worked with are indigenous peoples, Biniza and Ikots people in the region who are fully engaged in activism around questions of transition and energy and how to create a more just transition. And so the political work that they're doing is super important. And the intellectual work that we found there as well, um, talking with our 
colleagues, people who were our interlocutors who became our friends. Um, I also want to recognize the time and energy that they put into this project. And, you know, it was really, it was gratifying to see that people wanted to have this story told. And we heard that again and again during the research. We, we want you to get these ideas out there. We want people to hear the story of of how these things are unfolding because they are a tale for future places and future projects. And so I just want to make sure that we, um, we recognize all the good hard work that everyone in the Isthmus and folks in Oaxaca city, and even some folks in the DFA in Mexico city right. put into this project because literally it could not have happened without it and without all their energy and, and passion for the, for the work. Yeah. That in that doing. sense, this is like the, the voices in this book, these books are many more than art too. There really is like yeah. a legion of different folks who have contributed. And I guess that's true of a lot of anthropology, but I mean, especially in a case like this, where there's so many different stakeholders in these projects and so many different perspectives, it really, as somebody said, you have to, at some point, just say, listen, we're doing our best to kind of channel what's happening out there as much as we're trying to author anything. Well, I suppose that's a good note to end on. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk with me and sharing your experiences and creating these volumes. And I want to thank you for writing these incredible works so timely and important for the challenges facing us now. Thank, thank you. you so much, Lance. Thank it was you, really Lance. good to talk with you. And thank you again for all the work you're doing, too, to, to get these ideas out there. It's important. <laughs>